You are listening to a Bill Bennett podcast special feature. It's a conversation with Charles Koch. This is part of a series of discussions with Charles Koch, an American businessman and philanthropist. He's the chairman and CEO of Koch Industries. We're going to dive deep into a concept developed by Charles Koch called the virtuous cycle and its potential to impact society positively in four different areas, education, community, business, and government. This is an eight-part series with a new segment released each Monday for the next eight weeks. We begin our conversation discussing Charles' intellectual journey from his concept of good profit to the concept of the virtuous cycle. Right. Well, just uh, go back maybe in a little on on how all this originated. I, I went to MIT, got three degrees there, and became fascinated there with science, the principles of science, the philosophy of science. And after I left MIT, I went to work for a consulting firm in Boston called Arthur D. Little, which was then a leading consulting firm, not just business, but in uh, the, the whole range of, uh, of matters that technologies and so on. In the two and a half years I was there, I I pushed myself around and got to work in various groups, process development, product development, innovation, management, consulting. That was quite a thing because by the time I left, I was almost 26, still 25. But my father called me a couple of times and uh, after I'd been there about two years and wanted me to come back and join the company. And But I wanted to be in business for myself. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And Arthur D. Little there and being in Boston was a great place to look at opportunities or to see opportunities I could go in business with other people or get an idea of something I could do. And so I much preferred that than coming back and working for him. He was uh, a tough uh, Dutchman and his one of his favorite saying is, you can tell the Dutch, but you can't tell them much. And so I, I didn't want to go back through. He had made me work in all my spare time from the time I was six. And so I didn't go, want to go back doing those dirty jobs again. Not that that would be what this would entail. But finally, he called me and said that he, um, as I knew, his health was poor. His blood pressure was running 230 over 120, and he had all sorts of heart problems. And he said, son, I, I don't have long to live, and uh, I'm just not in shape to run the company anymore, and so it's not in very good shape. So either you come back to run it or I've got to sell it. And I said, wow, this sounds like one of the better offers I'm going to get to to be an entrepreneur, to come back and uh, run a company at my age and be a part owner in it. That's as good as it gets. So I came back and it was in worse shape than I thought because of his health problems that he had placeholders running our businesses and they were stagnant. And our our main business was a crude oil gathering system in southern Oklahoma. And, and crude oil gathering, it means you, you move the oil from the oil lease to a trunk pipeline. So usually you just move it a few miles. And our business in Southern was moving it by pipeline, which is preferred to moving it over trucks. And then we had a smaller business of making internals for distillation towers, which was also stagnant. 
And at the same time, I became fascinated with the principles of, as I had been, of scientific progress. And I, I was reading science, philosophy of science, about the scientific method, and, and had been it to some extent when I was at Arthur D. Little. And I also became fascinated with the principles of social progress. Where So I, I started reading everything in the social sciences and history to understand that. And I've had a, a mentality or an attitude always when I learned a principle that I thought would good in one area, I'd say, okay, how do I apply that in other aspects of my life? You talked about the opportunity of a lifetime. Originally, you didn't want to come back, but when you saw the situation, you thought this is an incredible opportunity. Just you were, what, 25, 26? Yeah, I was 25. I was close. To, I came back in October of 1961, and I my birthday was November. Were you, were you also anxious? I mean, this was a big responsibility to take this on. Uh, were you nervous? No, but it, it see the company since we're so large now they think it was large. We the main business was a crude oil gathering system in southern Oklahoma, and then we had this small tower internal business. So I was just licking my chops. I had all these theories and I was learning principles. And I mean, you know, when you're that young, you don't know how ignorant you are. You weren't mature enough to know not to be so confident. Yeah, that I mean. I didn't have a lot of humility then, and I've learned it by getting my teeth kicked in and making more mistakes probably than uh, than good things. It's just I've let the good things run and, and tried to eliminate the mistakes, and that's how we've been successful. And there was uh, then a protectionist attitude in these two businesses. And, for example, in the crude oil gathering business, we were selling the oil we gathered there to major oil companies. And they said, we like to do our own gathering. You're doing it here, and that's fine, but we don't want you moving into other areas. So you stay here and we'll continue to buy your oil and you go out and start competing with us and things might change. So that the business was then frozen in southern Oklahoma. And then there was a a different kind of protectionist attitude in the tower internal business. The team there was really proud of their intellectual property, that is their how to design these internals. And they wouldn't share it with their potential customers. And the big engineers engineering companies and the big users, the big oil and chemical companies, wouldn't buy things unless they understood the design and were satisfied themselves it would work. So we were cut out of a lot of the market. And then we, we had had to set up manufacturing in Europe to satisfy that market and the growing market in the Middle East. And we also had undue pride in our manufacturing know-how to make these distillation trays, their decks that go inside these towers. To protect this in Europe, they'd set up different fabricators to make different components in a number of the different countries in Europe. So it was a logistical and manufacturing nightmare. And that's the first thing I did is when I came back, I went to Europe and said, my God, we got to set up our own plant. I mean, it's not a big, expensive plant, metal fabricating plant, which we did in Italy. And then we got competitive. So that was one form of protectionism we overcame. And then I said, we've got to dedicate ourselves to creating value for our customers. And if those who value having to know how we design it and check our designs, we got to give it to them or we'll never be successful. And we started doing that. And then as we became successful and started growing, I said, okay, let's now look for other products that we have the capability 
to design and make. And I hired a, a business development person who had experience in these. And so we were off and running. How big were you then, Charles? How big was the company then? Well, the tower internal business had sales of a little less than $2 million. I forget. A little less than $2 million. It was a break-even. How many employees? It would vary depending on our workload, but let's say 60. And then the, uh, the crude oil gathering had, uh, I don't know, maybe 200, 200 to 300. And uh, it was gathering about 60,000 barrels a day. It started growing, and we, and we got my father to agree to this. I had a, a great person to really help me and, and did most of this in the crude oil gathering, Sterling Varner, who later became president of our company. So I had an ally on what we needed to do to get out of this stagnation and, and take advantage of what abilities we had. And then I started applying or developing this philosophy of creating, and I didn't call it that then. Matter of fact, just in the last few years, I've been trying to better understand, okay, what were, I mean, I understood it obviously in in general that we developed a management philosophy around these principles called market-based management. But then how did we apply that to really go from a crude oil gathering company to one that has sales of over $100 billion a year in 50 countries with 120,000 employees and in multiple industries. And it was through what I now call creating virtuous cycles of mutual benefit. Good. All right. Let's talk about those virtuous cycles of mutual benefit. I'm just curious. You know, I'm an academic type, at least was uh, raised it. That's my nest. That's my taproot. But how much of this, and you can say so as you as you develop and explain the ideas, but you talked about your education at MIT and that you were a thinker, you were developing things. How much did you come to this with your own ideas and concepts and how much of it dawned on you or came to you in process? Was this an a priori operation for you in your mind. Now I got this business, so I'm going to apply these things I've thought about, you know, all my young life. Or did these things come to you uh, in the process of developing the business or both? Yeah, it's, uh, I'll give you my philosophy on education. I know you're an educator and yours. I look at education as something quite different than schooling, at least schooling in the historical sense. That is, some expert then lectures to you and you regurgitate it and pass a test. And I look at education as not that one-dimensional, but as three-dimensional. No one taught me that. I just, that's just the way I was. And I'm sure it was influence of my parents on that because they were fascinated with learning and, and the other aspects. So the first piece to me of a true education is learning about yourself. You learn what you're good at. I've become a big, or later, of Howard Gardner's uh, multiple intelligence theory. The people aren't smart or dumb, that everybody is relatively good at something and can learn and contribute and succeed if they can find that gift they have and then internalize it in a way that motivates them, that turns them on. And so that's it. So you've got to learn about yourself. And I, I think that's a tragedy of our education system today that it doesn't encourage and get the students, particularly when they're very young, to experiment and find what they were good at. And I was blessed in that in the third grade. It became obvious. I didn't think I was good at anything. But in the third grade, I found out that Wow, math came to me. It was like I already knew it. And the other students in the third grade, it wasn't. So, wow, 
I might be good at something. And that pushed me in this path my, my whole life, the path of working at things where it required logic, math, good concepts. So that's the one. Then the second piece of education is given your innate abilities and what you want to do is learning the concepts, facts, values, and stuff that will make you successful in whatever the opportunities take you and given who you are. And then the third dimension is learning how to do, how to combine those first two pieces in getting results integrating those. And that's what an education should be about, enabling everybody to do that so everybody has the opportunity to have a successful, fulfilling life, in Maslow's terms, to become self-actualized. Coming up on our next installment, we'll discuss the three facets of education that Charles just laid out as applied to him and his business. This is a Bill Bennett Podcast special feature. It's a conversation with Charles Cope. 